0: Was that last song not a huge blessing? I loved that song. We can, yeah, you can clap for that. That was fantastic. That's such a great way to begin this holiday season. And I don't know where you draw the borders on where you think holiday season begins. But for me, it really is after Thanksgiving. And here's the reason why. Uh, The etymology of the word holiday literally means holy day. So the next time somebody at the store says happy holidays, don't say, no, you mean Merry Christmas, don't do that. Say, yeah, it is holidays, it's holy days. It's all these days that lead up to this culmination where we remember the birth of Christ and the incredible transformation that that brought. And I think that's why for me, I love the Advent season and I love the Sundays of Advent. If you're not familiar with this, uh, Advent means arrival or coming. And the four Sundays that lead into Christmas are the seasons of Advent or these remembrances of the days that commemorate things like peace and joy and hope and love. That's all the Advent season. And what I hope for us as a church, whether you're here in the room or you're watching online, I hope that during these holy days of Christmas, uh, Sunday can be like an anchor point. And, and a time of reflection, of uh, a, a sense of, of wholeness internally. Because I know how this whole season can go for us, too. We're going to be doing a lot of shopping, a lot of spending, a lot of rushing, a lot of partying, a lot of festivities and friends and fun. But in there, I also know there can be stress and strain and pressures and all of that's in there. And therefore, I hope that Sundays act as this anchor for us. Where we can just find some rest and reflection. And reflection. And so as I get ready for us to pray this morning as we go into this first of our four Sundays of Advent on this theme of peace. uh, I just want to encourage us to take a moment in the silence. uh, To just between us and God to have a moment of of prayer. To prepare us for these next four Sundays and then the fifth Sunday is actually on Christmas Day. That's going to be just a video simulcast. We won't meet here at the school on Christmas morning because that is a Sunday morning, um, but, but I, I, I do. I, I want us to just have this, again, centering on the supremacy of Christ during these holy days of Advent. And so right now, I'm going to give you all just a moment where you're at, just to kind of quietly pray to yourself. And then I'm going to pray, and we'll get into what Jesus has for us today. And I hope it's something that is an encouragement and a reminder of what it is we are all called and uh, and, and commissioned to be about. Let's go ahead and do this together. Jesus we enter this season uh, very familiar with the story almost too familiar at times we know the story of Bethlehem Mary and Joseph and the manger scene of a dirty dark cave we know of shepherds and angels but I pray the story never gets old for us because embedded into the story is this reality that you left a throne to become a servant You left the heights of heaven to enter into the human condition to connect with us, to share life with us, and to show us that you sympathize with our plight and condition and to rescue us from that. And so I pray that every one of these Sundays, as we remember the story, we are refreshed, we are inspired, we are challenged, to be your ambassadors in this world, to continue the uh, spreading of the story and how that story changes everything. And so Jesus, we look to you this morning to be our grace, our guide, and our inspiration. And Jesus, it's in your name we pray, amen. So Advent is really this concept of storytelling, if anything else, And, and that's what I love about it because it's not just simply December 25th and on that day we remember this birth event, but really Advent forces us to think about the whole grand epic story of God because when we think about the Bible, when we think about this whole thing, it's not just seven dispensations and three ages, it's not even two testaments when we really drill it down, we see there's this one dynamic breathing story of God, humanity, kind of rebellion, and then in that, a redemptive story where God steps into our world, meets us where we're at, and changes everything. And that's what Advent uh, kind of forces us to focus upon, and, and from that, to find some strength for life, strength for the future, and strength to, as I said earlier, tell the story. And so for this first Sunday, we focus on the concept of peace. And peace is an interesting word because it's well-worn within our world. Our world longs for peace. People desire peace in their own lives. But for all of that, we seem to really struggle to maintain or grasp peace for any length of time. And I think there's different reasons for this. I think one, it's just the simple reality that when it comes to peace, it's, it's very fragile in our world. It's like no sooner do you establish it that it can kind of crumble rapidly with very little pressure. And so that makes it a challenge and a problem. But I think the other thing about peace, if we're really honest, is frankly, peace, it's boring. It's not exciting. It's not thrilling. It's not dynamic. It's not that thing where you go, man. I want to read a book all about peace. I want to watch a TV show where it's just sixty minutes of peace. We don't like movies that are all about the peace. Occasionally, one breaks out. And we're like, oh, that's good. But for the most part, that's not our thing. See, our jam is things like you know, video games where the first person is a shooter, not where the first person is an ambassador. That would be a boring game, right? little diplomat just running around saying let's get along everybody let's get along you know like that's not a fun game to us or sports that are peaceful who gets excited about peaceful sports it's called curling that's why we only watch it every four years and even then we're like yeah after five minutes i'm done they're all just like sweeping that's all i know there's a big stone flying that's it's not even it's no fun right they're, they're, you think about like even like the avengers they're, they're fighting for peace but they have to demolish an entire city to establish it or the all-time great christmas movie die hard yeah there you go right what has to happen at the end to establish peace on christmas eve nakatomi tower has to be destroyed that's how it works right we love aggression We we love this sense of kind of force and fight. We want to see the bully get his own. We want to see the snobby girl get cut to size. We want to see the bad guy die at the end. That's how we roll, man. We watch hockey for the fights, all right? In fact, Kraken, number two in the divisional conference, that's a different thing, but all right. So this is how we do it. And, And when I think about this, I go, why is this the case? Why is peace dull and aggression kind of fun? Well, I think it's because deep inside our nature, there is this pull toward conflict. There's a pull in us that we just kind of find it more appealing, more interesting, more stimulating to our nature. And that pull toward aggression and toward conflict has been pulling since the, the beginning of our story. Like, from the earliest days of the human narrative, there is this this moment, this trigger that changes things from peace to conflict. We find it way at the beginning of the Bible. We find it in the setting of Eden there at the beginning of our whole entire journey. So it starts in Genesis chapter 2, and it's a setting not of conflict, but it's a setting of incredible peace. Peace. We see it starts in verse 21, where it says, The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, which is very peaceful. Deep sleeps are great. And while the man slept, the Lord God took one of the man's ribs, closed up the opening, and from this he produces the woman. He draws from the man's side this helper, this complement, this person that together they will have incredible unity and peace. This is why in verse 24 it says, The two are united into one. That's a peaceful thing. Anytime two people can perfectly get along, that's great peace. So much was the peace that it says the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Now, I love to take us back to the section as often as possible, because again, I think he gives us kind of this architecture for what we face in life. And when I look at this, I go, man, uh, at the core of this is harmony and beauty and intimacy and safety and calm. It's, it's peace, there's no shame, there's no soreness, there's no insecurity, there's no secrets. In fact, the Hebrews had a word for this it was shalom. Shalom right that's their understanding of peace and when we're in genesis chapter 2 you have the most perfect display of shalom so there's shalom between humans and god there's shalom between humans one to another and there's shalom between the humans and the created order itself so perfect beauty perfect balance perfect symmetry everything is exactly as it should be it's shalom but quickly by chapter 3 the peace is shattered and conflict emerges we see where a protagonist enters into the story, dissatisfaction ignites in the parties that are there in Eden, and from that, division is born. And so there's this hunger for knowledge on the part of the woman, And while I believe firmly that God was going to give them all the knowledge they sought and more, it had to be in his season, in his ways, at his time. But she decides for a whole set of reasons that she wants knowledge outside of due season. So she reaches and she takes the knowledge that is not hers to take at that time. She shares this with her husband. He's kind of enlightened in a way that is out of due season. And from this rebellion is born in their soul. And at that moment, Conflict emerges. It, it's all a story of conflict at that point. It's going to be conflict between humans and God, uh, between humans and one another, and between humans and creation. All of that conflict is going to emerge all at once. And so as the story unfolds into chapter 3, God enters into the garden. He's looking for the newlywed couple so he can hang out with them because that's his jam. He loves what he's made. He wants to be with those whom he has made, and so he is looking for them, but they are hiding, and they are hiding in what the Bible says is shame. Shame is a powerful word. And I was thinking about this just this morning, how weird it would be uh, as that first couple to experience that emotion for the first time because see for us when we grow we experience all of our emotions when we're real little so we're familiar with those things but adam and eve had full cognitive ability but had never experienced this whole rush of negative emotions until this particular time and so what they do in their feebleness is they go we feel shame what should we do let's cover up with leaves because that totally deals with internal problems put outer leaves on your body that doesn't solve the shame problem And then they hide from the all-seeing God as though they can hide from the all-seeing God. But all of this is beginning to show how the conflict is going to start from the inside and work its way out. And so they try to cover. They try to flee. They try to kind of steer things a different direction. But then God calls out. He says, where are you? And listen to what the man says. I heard The sound of you walking in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And so then God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you to not eat? Now in this, there's a couple of things that I think are important. One is God's asking a rhetorical question, a set of questions. God knows exactly what's going on. But when you look at what the man does here, you see the poison already beginning to ooze into the environment. Because notice he said, I heard. I was afraid. I was naked. I hid myself. There's so much self-focus at this point. He goes from other focus to self-focus, and if you want to know where all peace falls apart, it's when one party is more concerned about themselves than the other. All breakdowns, all wars, all Problems of every kind where there is conflict turns on the whole axis of I'm looking out for me more than I'm looking out for you. That's where conflict emerges and so you already see the conditions. And then notice how Adam takes it a step further. He says in verse 12, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. See, what you see here again is not only really the man looking out for himself, but he's blaming others. That really heightens the conflict. God, it's your fault, it's her fault. Even the woman's kind of like, well, it's the serpent's fault, but she has a certain level of ownership here. But he's blaming. And from that, it's creating the conflict. And so the rest of the story is all about then the calamity of conflict. He says to the serpent, God says this, because you have done this, Cursed are you. I will put in between between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, which is the woman's offspring, will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Conflict. There'll be a fight. Now, what's cool about that little section there in Genesis is it's a proto gospel. In other words, embedded into that little nuanced concept is this promise that there will be an offspring. And you can track that through the rest of the Bible, this concept of an offspring that comes to undo the damage of the enemy in Eden. That's the message of Christ. Jesus is already highlighted in Genesis 3 as the one who will come and overturn the damage that has been done, but it will be conflict up to that point. It will be conflict to undo that damage. And so there's no peace there had been peace in chapter 2. It was beautiful. It was balanced. It was complete. But now, conflict. And then to the woman, God says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you will bring forth children. And your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So while in one sense the woman will be the vessel by which the chosen one will come There's also this reality for the woman There's going to be conflict both in rearing her children and being married to her husband Where there would have been peace now there is discord And any woman who has raised children know, knows it's, it's not peace always Any woman who's been married any man knows it's not always peace it's conflict And because the man is attached to the woman and the man will be having these children, he will suffer the same kind of consequence. Then his consequence is even kind of stated a step further. He says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, kind of a fun Hebrew lesson here really quick. But the word for dirt and the word for the name Adam are almost the same. Adam and Adam. It's like saying his name is dirty, and that's dirt. That's kind of the essence. But what that communicated was up to this point there was a symmetry between the man and creation. There was a unity. They were in perfect sync. When Adam was with the earth, it was like he was connected. There was an at-homeness before this rebellion, and now there was going to be a brokenness, an asymmetry creation was not going to get along with the man and the man was not going to get along with creation on top of the fact that he wasn't always going to get along with his wife and he wasn't going to get along with his kids all of it is now broken they have all been dislodged from a sense of peace in fact you see this fully punctuate by the end of the chapter when we see that God drove the man out east of the garden And then he put a cherub in that place with a flaming sword, and it turned in every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, the tree of life, it has, again, this symbolism attached to it, which is that's where home is, that's where peace is, that's where completeness is. In fact, it's no wonder when we read the Gospel of John, repeatedly Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the vine, you are the branches. Stay with me, and you're going to have life. I've come to give you abundant life. It's like Jesus is the very essence of the tree of life that was in Eden, and that's what gets stripped away from people. And so they're fleshed out into this this harsh, hostile, disunified world. They don't have a source of at-homeness, at-oneness, or peace with God or with others. So when you hit Genesis 4, It's just a mess. It's a mess, man. You see conflict, division, altercation, nationalism, militarism, exploitation, hate, and violence. It's just, once you hit Genesis four, and they get five, and then six, by chapter six, God's like, we're just gonna flood it all, start over again. Because they're so violent, they're so wicked, they're so nasty. And on the other side of that, it continues. And not just in the biblical narrative, you see all kinds of disunity, violence, and hate in the absence of peace. Just look at all of human history outside of the Bible, it's the same thing. It's like we're really good at creating the problem. It's all assaults and retaliation, demonizing and idolizing. We have platitudes of peace, but boy, we have acts of war. And this is why, then, the Bible says, ah, you need the one. You need the one that can change everything. You need the one who can step into the conditions and offer something that you all can't create for yourselves. You need the one who can do for you what you can't do in your strength. You need the one of Genesis 3 that was promised to the woman that would come and crush a serpent's head. That is the one that can bring peace. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, he was a prophet in a very hostile time where his people were getting ready to go to war with the Babylonians, and he saw the mess that was coming, and he writes these words of hope. He says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here's what I love about this and how it's kind of counterintuitive to the way things were typically understood. See, princes were bred to be kings, and kings were built to go to war. That's the way you typically sign. But now you have this prince of peace, not a prince to become a king to go to war, but a prince to become a king to then bring in and usher in a reign of peace. And how do we know it's gonna happen? Well, here it says, God is zealous for this peace. He's zealous to make it happen. He wants to get us back to Eden. And with this, it says, he will do it himself. He will come to us, he will come among us and for us to enter the conflict and produce what we cannot produce for ourselves. In fact, later in Isaiah, it says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. This is just a personal thing for me when I read that. But I see that as kind of uh, alluding to when Jesus comes and he teaches something like the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching his children, this is the way of peace. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, if there's any dominating theme, in my mind, it's this is how peace is established in an unpeaceful world. It's counterintuitive, it's upside down, it's backwards. None of it feels safe, but this is the only way forward to bring peace to a broken existence. And so what we see from Isaiah is that God himself will come, and he will tell us how to enjoy peace and how to express peace so that's the promise way back hundreds of years ago over a thousand years ago man like this is the promise that's unfolding over three thousand years ago i mean it's all in there right it's all in there but then on one suspecting eve we see the advent of god where god comes to renew to embody and to mentor us in peace it's in luke chapter 2 it says and in that same region the region where there was this teenage couple and a newborn baby lying in a manger in some cave that was cold and dark and damp in the same region where this couple was there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night and an angel of the lord appeared to them and the glory of the lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear And then the angel said to them, Do not fear, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For under you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And then suddenly there was with this angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Peace among those whom God is pleased. See, I love this because the prince who comes, comes with peace, not war. And he subdues his enemies, not with violence and force and conquest, but rather he comes to bring sacrificial love and service and mercy and grace and release. He's going to bring peace through the means of peace. He's going to restore all things. In fact, I think one of the most powerful passages in all of the New Testament is found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. It talks about this. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross see for centuries Israel had been seeking peace but they wanted peace through kings and conflict and conquest right that's what they wanted and now the king comes but he lays himself down the king comes and he willingly dies he doesn't raise a fist he doesn't raise a sword he doesn't raise his voice he comes and says the most crazy thing possible while he's dying at the hands of his world he says forgive them they know not what they do. So he comes and he brings this peace through a radical self-sacrifice. And notice the scope of this peace. All things in heaven and earth. I don't know what that means, but it gives me hope. It gives me hope that this is just how radical of an ocean he is engaged in. And so, he is the God of peace who brings peace. But he brings this peace so we can then model this peace. And I think that's the other thing to realize. We don't want to simply be cul-de-sacs of peace. Like, God, give me peace and it stays with me. No, he's like, I want to make you a conduit of peace. I want you to have peace so you can give peace. Which means then for us, as we're thinking about the season of Advent in this first Sunday, we want to know how we can first experience the peace of God so that we might express the peace of God. So how do we experience it? Well, I'm convinced that only Jesus alone can give this level of peace, because Jesus himself says this in the Gospel of John. He says, I'm gonna give you a peace the world cannot give. The world gives peace through force, peace through treaties, peace through truce, but it can't give real, lasting, deep, powerful peace. It's only Jesus is the source of peace. But then from this, how do we engage it? Well, I turn our attention to Philippians chapter four. We looked at this here recently, but I think it's so valuable it's worth repeating. What is the formula for peace to be experienced well it says rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice engage in the action of rejoicing even when you don't feel like it he says let's go a step further don't be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and what's the result The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, I always see this as a formula. If I rejoice, if I pray, if I think, if I'm not anxious, man, peace begins to well up in me. Because that's what he promises to do. And then Paul gives us a booster shot. He says, Finally, brothers, Whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, if there are things that are worthy of praise, think about those things. Think about things that are excellent, right? He goes, and what you've learned and received and heard from me, man, practice those things. And what's the result? The peace of God will be with you. Or more importantly, the God of peace. So you see, there's a, again, this is connectivity in it all. Like when we do those things, God's peace and the peace of God, the God who is peace himself, will dwell with us. But we have to pursue. It's easy to pursue other things instead of this tactic for peace. It's easy to resort to fear or superiority or whatever else to try to maintain it for myself. But it doesn't work, it doesn't last. Any, any, nation or people group that's ever tried to use force to secure peace never could hold it up. Ask the Babylonians ask the Persians, ask the Greeks ask the Romans, ask the Ottomans ask the British, ask the Russians, I mean you name it. None, None of them have been able to secure peace through these means. And certainly inner peace is never secured by the things of the world. We try to use money to secure peace or experiences substances, relationships therapies, you name it we try it peace stays elusive. But Paul says, no, I'm telling you. If you do these things, the peace of God and the God of peace will dwell with you. He will be in your presence in a very real way. And from this experience of peace, you can then express peace. And I think that's the other thing, just in my own thinking. Part of or at least some of the times that I don't sense the peace of God is because I don't, I don't follow through on the, on the conduit side. I'm like, God, give me my peace, but I don't want to have to do stuff that creates peace in this world. And he's like, then that's why you don't experience it fully. Because you're still too much like Adam, I, 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 versus I want to use you for others. And so we want to experience so as to express. In fact, in James chapter three, it talks about like an earthly wisdom. Wisdom. This earthly wisdom that wants security through retaliation and conflict and ensuring my own way at the cost of others. And he's like, it doesn't work. It's really broken. It just creates a mess. He says, but the wisdom from above is first of all, pure. And it's also peace-loving. It's gentle at all times and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism, and it's always sincere. He says, and those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. See, our world has plenty of conflict makers, right? Turn on the news. They're awesome at making conflict. Social media, conflict. Conspiracists, conflict. Politicians, conflict. Pundits, conflict. Ruling class, conflict. You name it, they'll create conflict. But we are invited to something different. We're invited to know the God of peace, the God who gives peace, and then we're invited to share that peace with others, for that is true wisdom. But we need to do it in his way, with his disposition, his priorities, his kingdom values, and his love to reconcile all. In fact, if anything, we want to remember this simple truth. God blesses those who create peace, for they will be called the children of Of God. Right now, I want to invite everyone to simply close their eyes. And and I want to take a moment here for all of us in the room or all of us watching. I know there's some in this room right now where you follow Jesus, but you don't sense peace. For whatever reason, maybe there's just financial things going on, family things going on, life things going on, internal mental health or crises going on. And and I just want to close this morning praying for you. I just want to pray for you that you would sense peace where it feels very, very distant. Now there may be others that are watching or in here and you go, I don't follow Jesus and I need that kind of peace. I need a greater peace than the peace that this world offers me. Well, that for you is a prayer way where you simply go to God and say, you know what? Jesus, I have have gone my own way. I have not sought you. I have not followed you. I have not yielded my life to you, but, but I know that life would be better with you. I know your peace is what I crave. It's what I need in my life. If you make that your prayer and you go to him, he hears you, he takes you, and he will begin to work this out in your life. And if you make that your prayer, when your eyes open here in a second there's going to be a number and some information on the screen that you could text and let us know you made that decision or you can go to a tile or app and let us know you made that decision. We want to know. We want to be able to come around alongside you and encourage you in that. And then for everybody else you go, "Man, I've got peace right now." Then say, "God, how can I how can I be that conduit into other people's lives to share with them your peace?" Right? In a daily average normal way but in a way that seems extraordinary and otherworldly right like because we all want to be those ambassadors we all want to bring that difference in this world and so jesus i pray that you would help us for those who may not sense peace i sincerely do come before you and ask that you will bring that i know those days weeks even months where it just seems so far away and I ask that you, in a very special measure of your grace, would bring calm, bring comfort, bring a sense of your presence. May they rejoice, even if they don't feel like it. May they seek you in thankfulness, even if thankfulness is almost effort to get out of their heart and onto their lips. I pray for just a special mercy. I pray for all of us to be faithful to you and the, and the cause of bringing peace to this world. And I certainly pray for those who maybe have for the first time stepped into your presence, stepped into a walk with you. And, and I, I pray that, man, they will sense your peace in a powerful way. We thank you, Jesus, for your Amen. grace, for the reminder of the season, and for your goodness. That's in your name we pray. Amen.